So glad you're here. Welcome to Hope. Um, we, uh, this summer here at Hope, have been doing a summer teaching series on the book of Revelation. Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, tells us the story of the end. So the end of the world, the end of human history as it currently is in this time-space continuum arrangement. It's not the end of human history. It's the end of human history as it's progressing right now. Revelation tells us the story of the end that leads to the beginning, to the incredible, glorious restoration of God and all of his plans and promises for the world. You know, almost every great story that we love ends with restoration. If you think about the, the, the great epic stories, whether they're Disney princess movies or a fairy tale or the latest Marvel installment, I think there are over 50 Marvel movies in circulation now, but every Marvel film or the summer blockbuster, they all have the same themes. Do you ever just stop and think about the recurring themes in these stories? They all start out with, with a glorious or a beautiful past that gets traumatized by the entrance of evil. And then there has to be the rise of a hero who's surrounded by a fellowship. You know, a small band of sisters or small band of brothers that have to go on an epic quest. There's love to fight for. There's always a moment when hope hangs in the balance until there's a final epic battle when evil is overthrown and then the original goodness is restored. Um, those are the themes of the human heart, and they come right out of the book of Revelation. Re Revelation tells us about the end that leads to the beginning. And today I'm going to have you go in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Do, do, you, do you remember what a motif is? A motif is a recurring pattern in artistic, literary, or musical work. So if you're an artist, a motif is the pattern that consistently shows up in your art. For instance, uh, with Thomas Kincaid paintings, what's the main motif of his paintings? Light. Yeah, he's known as the painter of light. And a lot of great artists have recurring themes. They have motifs that communicate what they're trying to express. Um, a lot of the great literature out there relies heavily on this idea of a recurring theme to communicate the essence of, of what they're after. I mean, did, did you have to suffer through Romeo and Juliet? In junior high or high school, it's, it's not as easy to read as, as people might think. The, the, the motifs of Romeo and Juliet are light and darkness. And most of the action happens at night or, or in the morning when the night is, is giving way today. That's intentional. In the great Gadsby, greed and corruption and materialism and judgment are motifs. They keep showing up all the way through it. And it's very effective to keep circulating the same theme because it underscores the essence of what you're after. In music, when there's a recurring theme or a refrain that gets repeated, we call that a leitmotif. 
And light motifs are super effective at subtly bringing emotion into the hearer. And if you think about, for instance, Star Wars, everybody here has probably seen at least one Star Wars film. And Star Wars makes famous use of light motifs to communicate emotion. So let, let's think about a few of the light motifs from Star Wars. Do, do any of you recognize this theme right here? That theme is called the force theme, and it plays and it immediately reminds us of the moment and the emotion and the, the scene when the hero begins to respond to the stirring of the force inside them. How about this next one? That one's called Chris and Jessica Jackson. No. <laughs> Just kidding. That one's called Han Solo and the Princess. So it's their little romance music, but it also plays anytime there's a vulnerable or a tender moment in the film. And then, of course, the most iconic, classic, totally recognizable theme is the Imperial March. So other movies do this too. You know, the Rocky films make great use of motif with the theme workout music. And in fact, Indiana Jones, they play the theme music to that movie like every few minutes in the Indiana Jones films. I, I want to show you a quick video clip. Let me switch, let me switch movies. And, and I want to show you a scene that's from both literature and musical theater and um, film, which I didn't even realize is playing at the Pantages right now, but that's Les Miserables. Um, how many of you have seen Les Mis? or you read Les Mis, or you saw the play. Um, do you remember the song, Empty Chairs and Empty Tables? That's the song that Marius sang after the horrible defeat at the barricades, when all of his friends were killed, and it's this poignant, heartbreaking, stirring music, but that's not the first time it shows up. That's actually a leitmotif, and that particular song showed up much earlier in the story with the candlestick scene with Jean Valjean. So I want you to watch this. This is my favorite scene in all of Les Mis, but this scene and this theme sets the stage for all that's to come in Les Mis. Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. 
Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for What a scene. So scripture is filled with motifs, promise and rebellion, returning and rest, covenant relationships, light out of darkness, life out of death. There's an interesting motif in scripture of the younger brother leading the older brother. And anytime you see a theme repeated in Scripture, make note of it because God is trying to highlight something. See, that's what a motif is. A motif is an artistic highlighter that's drawing our attention to something that is so important that the author does not want us to miss it. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, there is a theme that gets highlighted that is so important it's, it's absolutely crucial for understanding God. And it's crucial for understanding how we are supposed to represent God in our world. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. But it's also a little bit foreign to us because it is completely opposite the way that we've been trained and programmed to relate in the world. But in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle John so this is John the, the Beloved, the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the disciple who got so close to Jesus at the Last Supper that his head was right on the Lord's chest. He was able to discern the Lord's heartbeat. This John had been exiled on the Greek island of Patmos. He was the victim of religious persecution. He was exiled because of his faith in Jesus. And I love a sentence from the first chapter. In Revelation chapter 1, John says these words. He says, on the Lord's day, while exiled, I was in the Spirit. And I love that phrase because even though he's marooned, and we don't know if he was alone, but he had been abandoned. He's exiled, and yet on the Lord's day, he still took time to worship and pray and meditate. And, and on this particular Lord's Day, while he's walking the island and gets caught up in the spirit, kind of like can happen to us when we walk the Thompson Creek Trail praying. Or you walk through your neighborhood. I actually walked my entire neighborhood this morning with an umbrella praying and just kind of being John uh, for a minute. On this particular Lord's Day, while walking in the spirit, he saw a vision of Jesus. 
He saw the Lord and the Lord gave him a message for seven churches of that day, although the message applies to the churches of every day. And he got a sneak peek into the reality of the supernatural world that we don't see, but it's all around us. And by the way, we don't have any trouble believing in things that we can't see. It's not a fantastic stretch to believe that there's other realities around us. We can't see wind. We can't see molecules unaided. We all believe in things that we can't see. But John sees the supernatural realm, and then he actually gets a preview of God's ultimate intention with creation of making things new and inaugurating what we call heaven. And in this moment of vision, he also sees a scene where God is holding a scroll in his right hand. The scroll is closed with seven wax seals. The scroll has writing on both sides of it. The writing is the promises, the judgments, the prophecies for planet Earth. The fate of planet Earth is in this scroll. Some theologians have referred to that as the title deed to planet Earth. And as John looks at the scroll, he's moved with emotion because he realizes this is so important, but there is no human that's able to deal with this scroll. He realizes there is no human and there is no human agency that can rescue the world and usher in heaven. That's what John recognizes in this moment. And, 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 And so he weeps and he laments that no one can open the scroll. And Most of the entire book of Revelation is very simple. It's a complicated book, but it's actually very simple. It's the unfolding of the scroll. As the scroll gets unfolded, traumatic events are released in the earth that move the creation to the end that leads to the beginning. And it's very interesting. The first portion of the opening of the scroll releases man-induced consequences. So the things that happen on earth are things like war and dictatorship and economic ruin or or trauma to the climate. It's things like that in the first few parts of the... In fact, it sounds like our nightly news. We tuned into the news, which we seldom do on TV, um, because we're trying to keep watch on this tropical storm thing, and they started going off on all the natural disasters and calamities, and this woman murdered um, that person, and this happened, and I thought, oh my God, they're... This is, this is the first few seals of the book of Revelation. I mean, that's what it sounds like in our nightly news. There comes a point, though, in the unfolding of the scroll where the calamity shifts from human-induced trauma to God actually judging evil, and it's God, ju- God judging evil that expunges evil from the world. So that's the book of Revelation, but in this moment, John realizes there is no human who can do this for us, and so we're stuck, and he begins to weep and weep and sob and ugly cry, and then verse 4, he says, I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, here in verse 6, we get introduced to the motif that changes everything. 
In verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So, so hold on a second. In verse 5, they said, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then in verse 6, he says, When I looked to behold the lion, I saw a lamb. So I looked for a lion, but I saw a lamb. I looked for might, but I saw humility. I looked for a conqueror, but I saw one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Hmm. I guess this could just be a creative way of bringing those two titles together because Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And scholars have found more than 200 names or titles for Jesus in the scripture. It takes a lot of names to communicate the essence of who Jesus is. So maybe John is just, just being creative or maybe he's not. Maybe this is the introduction of a recurring theme that is absolutely essential. Last Sunday, Donald Rucker was here, and in addition to telling you to say amen and talk to your neighbor all morning, he also took us to Revelation chapter 12, and he referenced the backdrop of spiritual warfare that we are living our lives up against. With this theme of the motif in your thinking, listen to these words from Revelation 12 verse 1. It'll be up on the screen as well. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So this is Israel, the, the woman from whom Jesus, the, the child, the Messiah, came. He was opposed by the dragon, Satan, but he finished his work on the cross on Good Friday and at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, and then he ascended back to the Father in heaven. So John is seeing a creative, visionary rendering of that story. And then verse 7 says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, but the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Verse 11. They triumphed over him, how? By the blood of the lamb. And they did not, and the, excuse me, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from 
death. So they triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the lamb. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. What would that look like? If you can picture that in your mind, what would that look like? I think that would look like a healthy lamb because the lamb's alive, but it would also have a bloody neck because it would look as if it had been slain. Remember, this is a vision. This is vision communicating a deeper truth. There was something about the lamb that was stronger than death. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, there's an Old Testament prophecy about this lamb, about this Messiah. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The wounds of this lamb are curative. The blood of this lamb somehow can neutralize sin and bring life. I mean, aren't wounds and blood usually signs of defeat? Those are not usually signs of victory. Um, wounds and blood are usually signs of someone's losing the battle. At the Last Supper, Jesus said something to his disciples. He said, hey guys, the, the prince of this world is coming. The dragon is on the hunt. But then he said this, he goes, but take heart. Be of good cheer. Listen, don't worry. I have overcome the world. And I bet those words were so encouraging to the disciples. When Jesus said, hey, the, the prince of this world is coming and it's a piece of cake, do not worry. I bet they were so encouraged until he surrendered in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember how the Gethsemane moment went down? Jesus is in the garden. Soldiers come to arrest him. And John's account of the story, I think it's John 18, tells us that Jesus goes out to meet the soldiers and he says, hey, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responded and he said, I am he. And John tells us that when Jesus said, I am he, the force of his personality and nature knocked them to the ground. Can you imagine if you were one of the disciples in that moment? I am he. And the enemies, they're just, they're flat on their backs. Can you imagine the, the boldness the guys would have felt? Yes, Lion of Judah. Let's go get him. Peter whips out a sword, hacks off a guy's ear. There's blood everywhere. There's chaos. And then Jesus says, put away your sword. And he heals the man's injured head, which means that the man's blood would have gotten on Jesus' hands, which means that Jesus went to the cross with the blood of Malchus, this wounded servant, on his body. And, and, and it just doesn't make sense. He surrenders. The, the lion was a lamb. And over the next few hours, we'll learn that the lamb was actually stronger than the dragon and actually stronger than the Roman Empire and even stronger than death. But by the time we get to the ending of the story and the scroll is almost totally unrolled, in Revelation 19, listen to these words. 
So when we get to the very end of the story of Revelation, in Revelation 19, verse 11, the scroll is almost totally open. Everything's been happening, and it says these words, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on himself that no one knows but he himself, because nobody even needs to know. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is Jesus. And people often speculate, whose blood is that covering his robe when he shows up on this scene? Is it, is it the blood of his enemies? Whose, whose blood is that? But, but if you notice verse 19 with me, if you have your Bibles, or I'll show you on the screen, if you drop down to verse 19, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So, so do you see that there? Uh, the, the armies assemble and the battle begins in verse 19, but Jesus is already covered in blood in verse 13 before the battle even starts. It's his own blood. Remember, he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, this motif in Revelation is highlighting the fact that Jesus Christ's victory does not unfold like the victories of the kingdoms of this world. Our world says might makes right. Dog eat dog. Look out for number one, my way or the highway. Those are not kingdom maxims. Those are not ways that the kingdom of God spreads. That's not how Jesus wages war. Verse 14 says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. That's his word. And so with his word, he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So apparently, Jesus Christ has tattoos. Because <laughs> when he throws his leg over the back of that horse, his robe rides up a little bit. And if you look close, you can see King of Kings and Lord of Lords stamped on his thigh. That's a superlative title. That's the title of a conqueror. But this conqueror is also the one that John the Baptist identified on the muddy banks of the Jordan River as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see the motif? This isn't the first time Jesus preached it. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you've read the words, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who mistreat you. They force you to go one mile, go with them too. Jesus preached this motif with his birth. The king was born in a stable where baby lambs were laid. Man, I mean, Jesus' kingdom is either totally upside down or this world is upside down. And Jesus came to set things right side up again. In fact, do you remember those overcomers in Revelation 12? Said they overcame by the blood of the lamb 
And then it says they overcame by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives enough to shrink from death. They overcame the dragon by mimicking the lamb. It says that they had a word of testimony in their, their mouth the same way Jesus had a word in his mouth. They were willing to give their lives away in the same way that Jesus was willing to give his life away. Those kinds of people are spiritual giants. And those kinds of people show the rest of us how to live. And here's what this looks like for you and me. This motif lived out in our daily lives. It does not look like telling a battered spouse to stay in a physically abusive relationship so that they can turn the other cheek. That's not what this looks like. This does not look like leaving somebody trapped in abuse or injustice or trauma so that they can go the extra mile. That's not what this is, is about. Scripture is about rescuing those people. What this is about in our daily lives, this is about you and me in our character, in our relationships, in our posture, our ethos, our decision-making. This is about us living on the high road. When I officiate weddings, I always try and customize my comments so they're specific to the, the couple. But there's always a few lines in my notes that are exactly the same in every wedding that I do. And right before the couple pledges their vows to each other, I read them a charge. And the charge says this. It says, if you will live on the high road, if you will love when it hurts, if you will forever remain one another's students, always learning new ways to serve and prefer one another, if you will guard and champion one another's hearts, and if you will continue to draw on God as your center and your source, you will experience your heart's desire and you will be a blessing to many, many people. In those opening lines, if you will live on the high road and if you will love when it hurts, those principles lay the foundation for a truly great life. I wrote a blog once about life on the high road. I'll just read a, a little bit of it to you. It says, the high road is a glorious road. It's the noble path of a generous, forgiving soul. It is the more loving, expansive way to live, but it is also quite costly. It hurts to take the high road when it doesn't seem fair. When we are asked to walk the higher path of forgiveness or choose to look the other way or extend the benefit of the doubt or live without closure, it can feel very wounding and debilitating. We can feel mocked by the sting of injustice. And in those painful times, it can be life-saving to remember that Jesus walked the high road first. The gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified on a hill. He literally died on the high road. His walk to the cross took him to a high place where he gave his life away for the sins and the healing of the world. And from that elevated place, he made the most remarkable statement. He said, Father, forgive them, the, the very ones who were crucifying him. They do not know what they're doing. Statements like that can only be made from the high road. Perspectives like that can only be gained from a loftier view of life. Embracing the high road does not mean that we will never experience justice or reconciliation, but it does mean that we choose to do what is right even if we never receive those things. 
And when we choose to live this way, rejecting bitterness, rejecting unforgiveness, something beautiful happens to us. Our souls get bigger. Our hearts grow softer. Our love reaches further. We, we get enveloped with the power of a clean conscience, the beauty of an expansive soul, and a grace that is only developed in the dark. You know, in, in our relationships, there are three possible paths that we can walk. There's the low road, there's the middle road, and there's the high road. The, the low road treats people worse than they deserve. The middle road treats people as they deserve. But the high road treats people better than they deserve. And listen, we don't have to take the high road. We're grown-ups. We do not have to walk the high road. We are allowed to throw temper tantrums, and we're allowed to be offended if we want to be. We're allowed to get bitter if we want to. Nobody's going to force you to walk this path. We are allowed to dig our heels in and, and absolutely go a low road. But we also know that that road scorches the world, and it shrinks the human soul. Jesus has treated me better than I deserve. Jessica has treated me better than I deserve. People in the church have treated me better than I deserve. You know, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is the father of the prodigal child running to that boy and clothing his shame with a royal robe. Grace is writing sins in the sand where they can be washed away instead of etching them in stone where they're going to remain forever. And that's actually a little harmonica music. It's not a, not a bad moment there, chairman of the board. You blaming it on your daughter? I was trying to create a moment there, but I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. I think that I could swear allegiance to a king like that. I, I think I could bend the knee to a king like that. I, I think I could happily live inside a kingdom like that. And I could spend my life trying to embody and export the values of a kingdom like that. And I think a kingdom like that could change the world. I think it could change a family, and I think it could change an individual. It is completely counter to how we've been taught to live. It is completely counter to the hostile, strident, shrill, divided, polarizing world that we're living in today. And just because the world is getting increasingly like that does not mean, well, the church better get involved and pick a side. The church transcends. The lamb is the lion. 
and defeats the dragon. Let me have you stand with me because I want to pray for a couple different groups of people here today. If you're here and if in your life today, if you are being asked to walk a high road and it hurts, I want to ask if you could just raise your hand. And there's certainly no embarrassment because we all spend time there. But if you're being asked to walk the high road right now, just lift your hand for a second. I want to pray for you. We all have to live it at times, but sometimes we're in a season where it is a constant season of God, help me not to be offended. God, help me not to get bitter. Help me to embrace the cross. Okay, you can drop your hands. Um, I won't make you raise your hand for this one, but, but, but so no hand raising, but, but is there anybody here today who needs this kind of grace? Is there anyone here who's been struggling with compromise? You've been circling back to addictive patterns. You've circled back to sins that you thought you dealt with, or maybe you've never fully dealt with, or maybe you, you, you said it again, you did it again, you went where you shouldn't, and, and there's just this, this remorse hanging over you today. Oh my gosh. If you can relate more to the prodigal son than the father of the prodigal son, then God has grace for you today, and I want to pray for you. And then I want to pray for all of us for every single one of us, that we would embody the merging of the lion and the lamb. As we move deeper into the end times, I'm not a predictor of how close we are, but there is no question. First of all, every generation is a terminal generation. Every generation in the time-space continuum is obviously getting closer to the end. And there are headlines in the nightly news that sound indeed as if they've come right from the first few seals of the book of Revelation. But whether we're, we're close or there's centuries in front of us because timing is different um, from God's perspective, um, I want to pray that we would embody the lion and the lamb. If we ever live through another COVID-like pandemic, if we ever live through another presidential election, whose blood will be on our robes? Ours or someone else's? Lord Jesus, it takes courage to live the high road, which is why you gave us the Holy Spirit, which is why you promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, to be with us always, even to the end of the age. It's why you said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's why you said, don't be afraid. Be of good heart. Be of good cheer. Lord, for any person here who's been asked in recent years or is currently being asked to walk the high road, inject them right now, God, with the power of the living God. Let the lion of the tribe of Judah take up residence in their heart. Give them a boldness and a power to give their life away. Jesus, you said, nobody takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down or take it up again. You gave your life. You gave your spirit. They didn't take it from you. You said it is finished. You surrendered your spirit. That wasn't taken from you. So I pray that these amazing people, Jesus, would have the courage to give their lives away. And even if we feel like it's being taken, let us turn the tables and let us give it. And let us experience the power of that. And then whatever that dynamic is, I pray, first of all, that we would walk it well. And as we walk it well, let it resolve. Let it mend. And then, Jesus, for any person here who is in need in this moment of oceans of grace, and God, every one of us here 
has been in that place. I pray that a tsunami of grace would wash over them. Wash over me, wash over us, and let us leave today clean, renewed, consciences revived, hearts refreshed. And then, Lord Jesus Christ, let each of us live through our days as the beautiful blend of lion and lamb, boldness and tenderness, courage and gentleness, power and humility. Let those things live inside us. Make us a church that is a a, a spiritual giant, modeling a kingdom way of being human and serving the world. Oh, Jesus, thank you for being the lion. We need a lion. God, we need a lion. And thank you for being the lamb because we need a lamb. You are everything. (laughs) Lord, I know it's just a story, but thank you for the the truth and the gospel in Les Mis, (laughs) that, that there's forgiveness and mercy and pardon and that you've raised us out of ashes. You've raised us out of darkness. We are so thankful. We open our hearts to you. Take up residence in our life. Have your way. Invade our world. Let it overflow to every person that we come near. We adore you. We worship you. Amen.